John Lamatina was the president of Pfizer Global Research and Development, where he managed more than 13,000 scientists and professionals in the United States, Europe, and Asia. He is the author of several books, including the recently published Pharma and Profits, Balancing Innovation, Medicine, and Drug Prices. John is a senior partner at PureTech Health and a contributor to Forbes. John, it's great to see you again. Thanks oh, for your hospitality. Same here. It's wonderful to have you guys back. I like your book. It was. It's. Thank you. I've liked all your books, but this one's really interesting because it really gets to the nut of the real core issue we're dealing with right now, and that is not just about pricing, but how it's becoming hostility against the industry. It's okay. becoming a political movement. You mentioned in the foreword of your book of an incident you had appearing on Dr. Oz's show. Can you tell that story? It, it was really a, a, a life-changing experience on, on a variety of levels. So uh, on a Wednesday, it happened to be, uh, if you're a Christian, the Wednesday of Holy Week, I had a phone call from uh, a producer from the Dr. Oz show who asked if I'd like to be on the show. They were doing a show about drugs, and they had a fellow named Dr. John Abramson, who was going to be on the show with Dr. Oz. And I, I knew of Abramson because he was what I call a pharma scold, somebody who just uh, attacks the industry. And a bit written, skeptical, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> worse than that. Uh, uh, and I thought, well, you know, the reason I wrote, this was after I'd written my first book, uh, Drug Truths. And so I said, well, the reason I wrote the book was to have an opportunity to get my message out. And so uh, I said, sure. And, and uh, basically, 36 hours later, which is was Good Friday, which turned out to be somewhat uh, prophetic based on what happened to me. <laughs> I, I uh, was uh, in the green room at uh, 30 Rockefeller Center waiting to go on stage. I had bought uh, Abramson's book uh, the two days earlier to read it, and I'm ready. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm on top of this. I know what they're going to ask, and I've got my arguments prepared. And then I walk out on the stage, and there's a big sign Four secrets drug companies don't want you to know. And I said, oh boy, uh, what am I walking into? And then we get seated and Dr. Oz steps in, in front of, of the audience. And as he's getting ready to talk, a, a voice comes on, the voice of God and says, just last week, the FDA announced that a Lee, an obo- uh, obesity drug, uh, was found to cause uh, pancreatitis and pancreas failure in 10 patients what else is the drug comp- are drug companies hiding from you? And I sat there and thought, my goodness, this is unbelievable. This is an over-the-counter drug now that, and I didn't have this fact at the time, that 40 million people had already taken. Uh, and yet, they were, and no drug is perfectly safe, and, and I don't doubt these were real cases of, of, of pancreatic flare-ups, almost all of which were in Europe, by the way, and not in the U.S. Only one was in the U.S. And, and they've got to focus on, and how this drug works, which is sort of interesting. It prevents fat from being absorbed in the gut. And so you don't absorb the fat. Well, the fat only does one thing. And that was explained in the commercials that were on television for Ali, which said it can cause loose stools, brown staining, and diarrhea, which is the mechanism that the drug works for. So I'm sitting there saying, and this is really a crappy drug. And I'm like, literally and figuratively. Literally, yeah. That's why I have to defend (laughs) this. What that gets worse because then he, he says to a woman sitting there, oh, I understand that you take this drug. What do you think of this now? And she said, not only do I take it, my daughter, who's also sitting here, takes it as well. And I'm appalled by this. And then Oz turns to the, the, he's sitting in front of a group, about 30 people. Well, how many of you have also had uh, uh, side effects due to drugs? And they all stand up. (laughs) It was was clearly a pre-selected audience along the way. So... What, what were the benefits of all this for me personally? Well, uh, I got to see an audience who looked at me, which is mostly female, 
who looked at me like I was the devil. And it didn't matter what I said. Uh, they didn't take anything that I said uh, as being truthful. Rather, Abramson and Oz dominated that. And at one point, uh, Abramson, who is a non-believer in statins, at least they're overprescribed, and nobody should t- really take them unless it's absolutely necessary. And, and he says, uh, uh, he's, he's going on and on about this. I said, finally, Dr. Oz, you're a cardiologist. What do you do uh, with your patients on statins? He says, I, I take them off it. And then I'm shocked because Oz has now sat in front of the country and told them not to take their statins. Interestingly enough, that part got cut when the show actually aired later on. So uh, he realized the mistakes. But that led me to a few things. It led me to write the second book, Devalued and Distrusted. Uh, Can the pharmaceutical uh, industry change its broken image? It also got me, uh, I have one of my sons is, is, uh, is a documentary filmmaker. He's pretty socially aware. And he said, Dad, you got to get your message out better. I said, well, well, how do I do that? He says, you got to start a blog. I said, well, I could start a blog, but you know, how are people going to know anything about it? He says, well, then you got to get on Twitter. I said, well, what's Twitter? <laughs> but that led me, this is now a dozen years ago, this, that led me to being more out there, writing now writing the, the next book, et cetera. So in the end, it was eye-opening to me. I got to see the negative perspective that people had, and I started to address what I wrote in a different manner to try and and overcome a lot of skepticism. And I think you also got to see how media is, I want I don't want to say manipulated, but certainly managed yeah. for a certain perspective. Sure, sure. There, there's no doubt that that audience was, was pre-selected, but the, the people who were there, their feelings were genuine. I don't think it was just a broad uh, section of the community, really. That Yeah, but you walked into a bear trap, basically. Yeah, true. Well, I, I learned from that. I hope as well. <laughs> Avoid bear traps. <laughs> so your book that you followed up with this based on that incident was Devalued and Detrusted. How Can the Pharmaceutical Industry Restore Its Broken Image? That was released in 2000. 2013, 10 years ago, um, to your latest book. How has the industry done repairing its image in the last 10 years, Jim? Well, I, from my perspective, I think they've done a lot. Now, whether or not people appreciate this, uh, I'm not certain. But let's talk about a few things. Every payment uh, uh, in the last 10 years, the following changes made. Every payment that a, a doctor receives from a pharmaceutical company, even if it's a slice of pizza, anything over $10. To, yeah, right? so, yeah, there's a limit. A, right? Or anything over $10 is reported by every company on their websites every quarter. So every doctor that they've paid, how much they've gotten and why they, they got. You know, a lot of doctors, uh, companies pay to give talks about the drugs they were part of clinical trials on. Now, these, these are studies that they end up publishing, et cetera. I mean, it's totally, you, you can't expect people to do stuff for free. You know, everybody's time is valuable and that includes a doctor who, who a company like Pfizer or Merkel, whoever would ask to go and say, hey, look, you're in the study. I think it's a great study. Would you go out and talk to other physician groups or whatever? And doctors who are often doing the clinical trial work, the clinical trialists are often the best in their field, oh, which is why you're selecting them. Absolutely. That's one thing that's changed. All those payments are now known. So if you want to know if your doctor's getting payments from a drug company, you can go online and find that out and you can decide whether or not you want to be a, a patient of that doctor or not. The second thing they've done is, and this would have been unheard of uh, uh, 10, 12 years ago, is that every clinical study that drug companies and biotech companies run are now posted online on clinicaltrials.gov. Every single study, type of study, the title of the study, the kind of patients being recruited, 
And it accomplishes a few things. Number one, it accomplishes a patient suddenly diagnosed with a certain type of cancer. And they want to know, can, can I get into a clinical trial? You can go online now and find, to find out where the trial is, what they're looking for, what the criteria are. But more importantly, these companies now are required to post the results of these trials within a year of completing the filing of the, uh, of completing the trial. Phase two study, phase three study. And so it's there for anyone to see online, which is would have been unheard of in the old days because even if the trial is negative, a company has to publish it. Right. We, we never would bother with that because it's a negative trial. It's, you know, this is not trivial to do. It's not just something you press a button on a computer and it takes a lot of trial, work, and effort to get all these data. And on. money. And money. Absolutely right. So, but, but most people don't care about ph- uh, pharmaceutical company expenses. What's, what's interesting, though, is that goes back to Ben Goldacre, the activist from the yeah. UK in the All Trials campaign. And what's fascinating, obviously, he's been very successful with that. I mean, I think it is a good thing that we're getting the positive and negative trials now. But what's interesting is there's been research that's been done hence, and it's the academic trials that are published. The academic trials are published. So ironically, (laughs) clinical trials are also done by uh, academic institutions at Harvard, Yale, wherever. And when Ben has go, and I've once met Ben, different story, we'll we'll do another another time. Ben will will go out and say, hey, look, the drug companies are are doing it 95% successor. But 50 or 60% of studies are still not getting filed within the year or even 18 months by, by the academic institutions. And, and that proves what we just said, and that is it's not trivial to put your study data up there. It takes time. It takes money. And, and companies have the more wherewithal than these, than these institutions. And that could, doesn't give them an excuse, but at least it, it, it's, they're not being totally uh, uh, derelict in their duties. Well, and academics have reputational risk as well. Yeah. You know, if they publish a negative trial, that, you know, again, that can go against them. They're still going to have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> in your newest book, Pharma and Profits, again, read the book, think it's great. In one whole chapter, you dedicate to Pfizer and the rollout they did of the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine and sort of the, the doubling down the huge bets that they made. Can you describe what sure, Pfizer sure. did? Sure, sure. So let me, let me give a, a, a disclaimer here for your, uh, obviously I'm the former head of Pfizer R&D, but I left Pfizer now 15 years ago. I don't know uh, the CEO, Dr. Albert Berla. Uh, he was in animal health when I was there. We only overlapped a few years and obviously he's done very well. And, and, uh, and so I don't know him, so I can say this without trying to suck up. I think he's been a spectacular, <laughs> spectacular CEO. And I think the story of the COVID vaccine sh- sort of demonstrates that. So Berla is about 18 months into his uh, leadership role and COVID hits. On a Friday, he calls in his leadership team and says, by Monday, I want your best ideas for how we can go after go after this in, in, in any way possible, be it a vaccine, be it a therapeutic, and you come back, I want to know. And so the team went out and came back with some suggestions on the following Monday. One of the suggestions was for a COVID vaccine based on mRNA technology. Now, Pfizer itself wasn't doing mRNA technology, but it had signed a deal with BioNTech, uh, which was a company in Germany, because Pfizer has has a vaccine division, successful vaccine division, and they were looking for new flu vaccines. And mRNA technology promised uh, a better flu vaccine because of a more rapid turnaround when you identify that seasonal flu and, and thought it could be a successful way of doing it. The Pfizer uh, head scientist uh, in vaccines uh, called uh, her equivalent in BioNTech and both agreed that this is something that's doable, but it was unproven technology. So Berler, here's this. This is February now. and February 2020. Uh, yeah, February 2020. And they 
You know, the old finest way is, you know, you invest, you know, you investigate both companies. They've got lawyers involved in the deal. It would take months to begin with. They do a handshake deal on, on saying, you know what, this is important. We need to do it. We'll figure out things, but let's agree to split things 50-50 in the profits and let's go to town on this. And they do. Now, also keep in mind that the year before, I think Pfizer had in 2019, $41 billion worth of sales. So when Pfizer announced they were doing this, Burl has said, uh, was asked about cost. He says, well, it may cost a uh, billion dollars, uh, but if it doesn't work, you know, it's not going to break us. Now, I thought about this and said, this is pretty <laughs> nervy for a new CEO to blow, if this doesn't work, a billion dollars, and it turned out to be $2 billion yeah. investment, a $2 billion when you only had sales the previous year of $41 billion. So, and how long in your time as head of R&D, how long would you normally expect for a ramp up in development time on a you know soup to nuts vaccine program. What, well, what, the, what best, would you be the, the best person to turn to was a fellow I have a tremendous amount of respect for, Ken Frazier, who was the a terrific CEO for Merck. And Frazier, in the middle of 2020, said, "I'm a little bit worried here. Companies are promising a potential vaccine in in a year's time, and the fastest vaccine that we at Merck ever produced was two and a half years, I think, for an Ebola vaccine." And so he said, I'm worried we're over-promising and it's going to look bad for the industry. Fortunately, he was wrong. But that gives you what the record had been at the time. And they did this in unbelievable time. Now, this was done in unbelievable time for a variety of reasons. Number one, Pfizer put an all-hands approach on this. Any resources that the vaccine team needed from whatever department, toxicology, formulations, uh, production, whatever they had and they would get. And there was a blank check. The manufacturing guys were told, you spend whatever you need to do to get this done. Remember, you're coming up with a vaccine never been produced before, and you're going to need billions of doses, yeah. not 100, not 10,000, billions of doses. And the other thing that, that he did was, we're going to start figuring out the manufacturing now. Normally, you don't start manufacturing uh, research till the st stuff is cleared, phase two studies, phase three studies, it's, uh, phase two studies. And so... All this upfront, that's why it was $2 billion, not $1 billion. All this upfront building building manufacturing capabilities, not just in one location in case something went wrong in one. No, international. Uh, international. So in a couple of places. All of this upfront stuff led to a miracle. And there's a, a wonderful show that National Geographic put out. That National Geographic got access to Berla and Pfizer uh, all during uh, this, this process. And I think the show was called... Uh, uh, Mission Possible, the search for a COVID vaccine. And they're actually in the room when the data get read out. So now you're in November of 2020. They've been working and people, I can tell you, and I know people who still work, they were working their butts off. Everybody, you know, this wasn't a, a, a 40 hour a week thing. You're working seven days a week. You're working out because you have friends and neighbors dying. Uh, you, you know, you're worried about your own family getting sick. So you've got all these people working hard and now it's a Sunday and they're in this room and it's a Zoom call. Uh, there are some people at Berla's house in the room. It's unbelievable. They read out the results and it works. Yeah. And Berla goes, holy bleep. They bleep it out. <laughs> we have a vaccine. And it was just, it's just tremendous. September 29th, we did a webinar with Michael Dalston, who yeah. has your old job yeah, at Pfizer. Yeah. He's done a great job. Done a great job. And we also had the chief from the vaccine negotiating committee from the European Commission, Clemens Martin Auer. Dr. Auer was on with um, Dr. Michael Dalston. Quite an interesting yeah, webinar. I can imagine. So my first question to, to Michael, so Michael, how's it going? We understand you're in the middle of a phase three. 
Michael's first answer to me was, well, Dwayne, we just finished our second phase of the phase three injections and the data is good. September 29th. Oh, he was already making a public statement at that point yeah. that they had, they knew they had good data at that yeah. point already. And then they were filing. That's yeah. September 29th. Yeah. February, September. Yeah. February, March, Fair. April, May, June, Fair July, point. August. That's eight months. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, great work, but you, but you had to, you know, get the data, you had to get the safety data, et cetera. And then you've got to compile it all for the FDA to see. So that, that still takes some time. And, and I raised this because there were now political pressures sure. on Pfizer and Moderna and J&J and the others who were actually saying, we want you get, it was clearly the, the administration at the time, the Trump administration, we want these results as soon as possible because uh, it was hoped that it would vindicate Operation Warp Speed and have an impact on how the election might go. And there was a letter in the New York Times, I believe, signed by all the companies working very diligently in the COVID area, the Regeneron's doing antibodies in Lilly and Moderna and Pfizer, et cetera, all saying, we will not re- release any drugs until they've been thoroughly vetted by the FDA. And that had to happen because you already had vaccine hesitancy in this country and you saw it a lot in the beginning. The last thing these companies needed was to make it seem like for political gains, they're putting something out there that at least didn't get the FDA imprimatur. And so that was a very important thing to do. And they had to make sure they had uh, very valid safety data before uh, allowing uh, millions and millions of people to get their vaccines. But you pointed out that they were also already manufacturing. They were already scaled up. had to. I was on a United Airlines flight from Brussels to Washington, and I was the only person on the plane. Literally, I was the only person on a 787. And I'm like, how the hell are you guys able to do this? And pointing out the windows, well, look at that. And trucks are coming in with cold packs, Mm. filling the plane with vaccine Uh, production out of uh, the Belgian facility. uh, So they were producing millions and millions and millions of doses already in October. And you had to because... Okay, FDA approves it, and then you say, well, where are the vaccines? Where are the vaccines? Oh, you know, in six months, we'll have enough for everybody. So they had to get it out there and ready to go. You had to get people ready to, uh, to, to give the shots. You had to get enough uh, freezer space to store all the stuff when, when you got your vaccines. And then, of course, you had to get it to the first responders, uh, which was happening in November, those who were working in, in hospitals, nurses and doctors and everybody else like that. If we wouldn't have had this happen with COVID, would you have ever believed that you would already be ramping up millions of doses in nine months from the point of starting a program, John? Would that have even been remotely no, possible? No, but again, you have, you have a situation here where you, you're facing the potential loss of millions and millions of people around the globe. You forget having groceries delivered to your house by yeah. somebody in a mask and then wiping everything down. <laughs> you're, you forget being locked in your homes. You, you, thank goodness for Zoom and that technology. I got to see my grandkids and got to see people okay. Uh, one of my sons and, 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 and daughter-in-law and their two grandsons, my two grandsons, they left from Manhattan where they live because they just couldn't be stuck in one apartment. They went up to uh, Cape Cod to weather out the pandemic and sort of solitude in the way, learning remotely. Just horrible, horrible stuff. Uh, you had to do this. You, you, there, was, there was no choice. You mentioned the Trump administration and Operation Warp Speed. It was the first time that was done. Can you describe how Operation Warp Speed worked? And again, keeping on your your ex-development hat, what would that have done for you having that? Well, uh, Operation Warp Speed actually did something, a few terrific things. First of all, at a time when you'll have academics who will say, well, we shouldn't have multiple, we should all focus on the best way to go. 
that would have been an absolute disaster because they never would have gone with an mRNA vaccine if everybody was going to work on one to get it out quicker. They would have, uh, because that would, is unprecedented. Well, we don't know if that's going to work. Warp Speed took uh, the six leading companies that were vaccine uh, production at the time, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and J&J. Moderna and Pfizer are the mRNA vaccines. AstraZeneca and J&J had a, a vector platform. And then Novavax and a combination of GSK and Sanofi had an adjuvant protein technology model. But they were two shots at three different vaccine methods of going. What Operation Waspy did was say to these companies, Okay, we will guarantee we will buy a certain number of your uh, vaccines should you be successful. Interestingly enough, they offered to buy 300 million doses from AstraZeneca because they were offering the cheapest price for their vaccine, yeah. $10 a dose. So they gave them th- uh, three, ordered 300 million. Should they be, and by successful means, you just don't hand over the vaccines. They have to be approved by the FDA, et cetera, et cetera. But if you were successful, your clinical trials were uh, $300 million. And then $100 million doses to Pfizer, uh, Moderna, Novavax, Sanofi, uh, GSK, which was a terrific thing to do because there was an incentive to go. It also put out what the price was going to be. Right. So for the Pfizer, uh, we would give you 100 million doses for $1.9 billion, which was basically uh, came out to be about $19.50 a dose. And Pfizer needed two doses, so it turned out to be you'd need, you would need $39 for the two, as with Moderna as well, et cetera. So you got to handle on what the price would be right away. I want to mention the price at this moment, because at the time, there was a New York Times editorial by Elizabeth Rosenthal, who's not a big fan of the biopharmaceutical <laughs> industry. And Rosenthal basically said, be careful what you wish for. So these vaccines, if these companies are successful, who knows what they're going to charge? She said, let's say they charge $500 per vaccination. Well, would that be unreasonable? Well, uh, shingles vaccines are about $300 and meningitis vaccines are about 250 Here you have something that'll save lives. So these companies may just try and justify $500 for their vaccines. Well, it turned out she was only off by about 20-fold, uh, and at $39 was pretty good. So anyway, Warp Speed did that, which was, which was terrific. Warp Speed also provided funds. Moderna had been in existence for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. It didn't have a product. Yeah. Had no manufacturing capabilities, whatever. So they provided money, and I think uh, Moderna must have gotten over a billion dollars yeah. to help support the research and also to build manufacturing capabilities. Great use of funds, right? You got in a crisis. You want to take as many shots as possible. You want to get this stuff out there. A great thing, and I don't think that was profligate or ever by Operation Warp Speed. One company didn't take any money, and that was Pfizer. And Pfizer said, we don't think we need it. This is important enough. We're going to invest in it. And if we're successful, fine. And if we're not, not going to bankrupt us, as Burl has said. So Operation Warp Speed did a lot of things, brought promise. If you're successful, you've got a market for your, for your vaccines. Uh, we will give you money if you need it for development. We're focusing on the, uh, these things, the diversity. And I think that had a lot to do with the success that uh, we eventually, all the companies eventually had. You know, if we look at AMR, antimicrobial resistance, yeah. And we look at the problems there, the market failures. I, when I was moderating a panel once, I had one of the economists from AstraZeneca on my panel. And I know that they had just released a multi-spectrum antibiotic. And I, I looked at him and said, hey, you guys just released one. How, how's it going? And he sort of chuckles. He's like, well, I'm not going to give you exact numbers, but I will tell you this. In Scotland, we've sold two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It illustrated completely the problem. I mean, you come so up with So for your a- audience, let's put this in perspective. So when you come up with a new antibacterial... 
that will only get used as a last resort. It only gets used as a last resort because the more an uh, antibacterial uh, agent gets used, resistance builds up to it somewhat slowly. But there are original forms of penicillin now that are useless because it, 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 every bug that now exists is resistant. So there's a good reason. It, it's not because people are, are, are cheap and don't want to spend it, but it's because you have to protect these antibiotics at all costs to make them last a long time for serious infections. But it's a dilemma because if you're trying to manufacture it, hopefully there's more than two people in, in <laughs> countries getting it. Nevertheless, you're not going to make money on something, and you have to make money. There's a profit motive here. If companies don't make money, you don't have enough money for research, you don't have enough money for researchers, and stuff goes out. So it, it's, it's by nature, it has to be profitable. Otherwise, it goes under. And so that's why there's been a, resist, a reluctance for people to do that. Now, there's a new bill that's probably going to be passed in a bipartisan way by Congress. The Pasteur Act? The Pasteur Act. The Pasteur Act is basically, they call it like a Netflix model, where the government is going to say, here are the three most important infections we want new uh, uh, antibacterials for. If you come up with an antibacterial for this, we will guarantee you a certain amount of money, and we will then store this stuff and use it on an as-needed basis. That sounds pretty good. I want to see, though, how it actually works in practice, because what the government will say, here is what we want, and here is what we'll pay for it. Right. Will that be sufficient enough for a company to be willing to go in and say, yeah, this is worth our while. We have a guaranteed market for this. Now, if it's like Operation Warp Speed, exactly. then, then it'll be a win-win. However, it's not a pandemic, and you can picture politicians on either side of the aisle basically saying, well, why, you know, why are we paying for this and just storing it? With a pandemic, we were giving it to everybody. And so it'll be interesting to see how all this works out. I think the idea is noble and worthwhile, uh, it, putting into practice may prove a bit challenging. Yeah, and if we look at the, again, I'll put on my European hat living in Belgium. If we look at how the Europeans dealt with the COVID pandemic and their pricing negotiation, they weren't willing to pay that $20 a dose. They weren't. They wanted to price half that. And so they were willing to dig in their heels and in their negotiations say, we, are, we want a lower price. Now, they got it. If we use Belgium as an example, Okay, they didn't pay 20, they paid 10. So that's 20 a complement of two vaccines, a booster and the normal injection. That's 20 bucks that they saved. There's 10 million people, that's $200 million that they saved. Now, in the course of doing that negotiation and also then charging a much lower price, they also had a delay of six to eight months in getting delivered. Yeah. And so Belgium locked down for an extra six months at a cost of $6.4 billion. Yeah. And how many people died? A, a ton. Yeah. Yeah, so. and, and then you have now the country is, you know, you're seeing what's happening with the energy policy and everything that's going on. It's a disaster. Yeah. I mean, the discussions around, quote unquote, saving money are so short-sighted. Yeah. Yeah. I fully agree. I had uh, a number of conversations with the media in Australia in late uh, 2020. And that was because uh, COVID first hit Australia. It wasn't too bad. And so... Uh, when Pfizer announced that it was getting close, they had all sorts of countries coming to them and lining up. Pfizer was very diligent about your first in, first get the vaccines. And Australia said, well, we're not so sure we're going to need it. And maybe we'll wait for the AstraZeneca vaccine that's cheaper, et cetera. So now suddenly in the winter, in late fall of 2020, they've got no vaccine yeah. in Australia. And, and now COVID hits them. And people say, well, where are the vaccines? And, and, 
you know, the Pfizer folks said, well, we tried to negotiate with your country. They weren't interested in it. Now they're starting to get interested. So, but their first, there are 25 million people who live in Australia. They would have need 50 million doses. Their first order was for 5 million doses. We said, <sighs> You know, just trying to say what, which was which is absurd. So anyway, yes, uh, uh, people can have uh, be too short-sighted on cost and and something as terrible as the the COVID uh, uh, nineteen pandemic, and that was now hopefully a mistake that won't get repeated down the line. We'll see. I'd like to discuss with you some of the issues mixing for-profit companies with government, as it were. I mean, if you look at Pfizer and Moderna and the Trump administration and Operation Warp Speed, obviously, during the pandemic, there was an enormous amount of collaboration, very close collaboration. But, you know, since that time, there's been the Twitter uh, leaks, the Twitter documents that have come out. And we're seeing that there was, for example, the NIH was running a coordinated campaign against two very well-respected academics, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, Martin Koldorf at Harvard. And you end up with a very bizarre situation now as you are a for-profit shareholder-driven company who is now aligned with the government when there appears to be some things that you are now going to be inheriting reputational risk because you're now getting dragged into the political world as a company by, by virtue of the fact you've teamed up with government. How should you balance those risks perceptionally? You have to work with government, but where do you draw the line? So, uh, first of all, uh, so many rules changed in the pandemic for COVID vaccines that you can't really extrapolate that to what we're going to now. Uh, so, for example, with the daily briefings we got on vaccine production, uh, clinical trials, etc., I didn't have to explain to anybody uh, what phase one, phase two, phase three trials were people. (laughs) People were learning all this. People were learning about vaccines. Uh, So that was great. And as a result of this heroic effort and and this unprecedented effort, suddenly the pharmaceutical reputation, company reputation got to as high as it had ever been, as high as it had been in the 1990s, which was wonderful. So it was great to see. And that, that I think, partially resulted by the fact that the government and, and the companies did collaborate and work together. So that was, that was terrific. In the two years since, <laughs> it's dropped back down again. Yeah. And it's dropped back down again because now the old bugaboos are coming out. Uh, drugs are too expensive and uh, can't afford our medicines and, and this and that. And these drug companies are making too much money. And then, of course, uh, last week when... Uh, uh, Senators uh, uh, Warren and Welch announced they were going to probe uh, Pfizer's planned increase uh, for their uh, vaccine. Now that the government is out of the vaccine business, more fuel to the fire of how these bad companies are. And yet, a study from a foundation that came out uh, about a, a month ago, month or two ago, showed that having the vaccines and not relying in, in, on natural immunities in the first two years of the vaccine's availability saved Six million lives, far less hospitalizations, but the amazing number was one trillion dollars in healthcare costs that would have erupted as if you didn't have those vaccines. One trillion dollars of savings for these vaccines, and now you got to begrudge companies for charging a little bit more and charging pretty much as much as what the flu vaccine costs. Give me a break. If you look at the UK data, uh, it's unfortunate. I don't think the CDC was really forthcoming with good data. I mean, unfortunately, we often had to look to foreign governments who were, you know, the UK did a pretty good job with a lot of their data. But if you looked at the Delta wave in particular, 
what you saw was vaccinated people had a two-thirds risk reduction, you know, 9%, if you're over 65, 9% deaths versus, you know, 25 3%. I mean, this, these are, that's huge impacts. Yeah. And hospitalization even oh, more so. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about, depending on how severe the COVID is, hospitalization is costing $40,000 a patient. You've got to be kidding me. You know, if you have hundreds and thousands of people in there, avoiding those costs is, is, is uh, and, and not only uh, uh, saving healthcare costs, but also unburdening, the healthcare givers and hospitals to get them to do what they really should be doing. But I guess fundamentally, my question is, if a company is teaming up with government and then government's acting political and those things are coming out like they are now, where there was political action, you're getting painted with that brush, unfortunately. Uh, Unless we can do something more to get recognition of the value, which is what people like you guys are doing with this podcast and others, uh, we're always going to be faced with that. There's, there are too many negative people out there, who, and I, I have no idea why uh, they have so much against the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical companies, which is just very sad to see, but they have their own agendas. So in general, do you think the industry's reputation is better worse or kind of the same now post as we're washing through the... I, I think it's a little better. Certainly... It's certainly better than when I wrote uh, Devalued and Distrusted 10 years ago. It is not as good as it was two years ago when we were riding on the praise and the hallelujahs from uh, the (laughs) vaccines. But we're again, uh, well, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. And and that alone tells you that people are clearly worried about drug prices and really don't care about the impact that controlling drug prices will have on the industry. Well, you have mentioned IRA. Happy to, <laughs> happy to jump into it now. Only twice. <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of work uh, for bio. We were on the sort of front line on the analysis that bio took on the Hill during that activity in June and July. And what's interesting is our number actually came pretty close to the CBO's number. They're, they're pretty much interchangeable. And what we found in our analysis is if you look at year 2030 of the Inflation Reduction Act, as it's currently written, we anticipate... 80 billion of liquidity being pulled out of the sector. I mean, literally just taking 80 billion and that's just out of 12 companies. Yeah. So for your audience who may not be up to speed on, on this, basically in the IRA for the first time, uh, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but I think historically it'll be known as the government's first entry into price controls yeah, on drug pricing. The drug pricing bill, yeah, absolutely. So I think that that'll happen. And what it does basically is in the first year it's enacted, they will take the top 10 drugs that Medicare spends the most money on and begin negotiating prices on those drugs with two provisos. For pills, the small molecule drugs uh, that people take, they have to have been on the market for 10 years before Medicare will be allowed to negotiate for those drugs. And for injectable drugs, uh, a lot of cancer drugs, a lot of immunology drugs that you have to go into a, a hospital to get, they can be on the market for 12 years before price negotiations kick in. 10 drugs the first year, I think 50 15. Drug, 15 drugs the second year, 15 drugs after that, and I think 20 eventually, and that'll be a steady state. There's been all sorts of debates on how much this is going to impact uh, drug companies. From the absurd that this is the uh, people who don't really have no, much knowledge about the industry and are, don't like it, it's going to have minimal impact <laughs> on these companies. They should just, uh, yes, it's going to, they're going to get less money, but they should work on they should work smarter. They should work on only those programs where things will work. Uh, and the absurdity of that is just mind-boggling how little they know about R&D. But I come down to a very basic principle here. The pharmaceutical industry invests 25% of total sales into R&D. 
more than any other industries. If you sell a hundred a million dollars worth of of drugs, twenty five million of that goes right into R and D. Doesn't go any place else. That's twenty. That's a huge chunk of money. It's clear that the government plans to save billions and billions of dollars as a result of this negotiation. Well, otherwise, why would they bother doing it? That means billions and billions of dollars less will be available for R&D. So let's use for a number uh, it saves, because I saw one number that said in, in the first 10 years, it would save roughly uh, $400 billion to the healthcare. A lot of money. Well, 25% of that is $100 billion less for R&D. That might not mean much to people. Well, the whole NIH budget in a given year is about $40 billion. If you take Pfizer, Merck, Lilly, et cetera, you know, maybe that's 40 or $50 billion. $100 billion is a lot of money. So that's less. So what is a company going to do with less revenues? I can tell you, I lived through this at Pfizer when Lipitor went off patent and a, and a drug that was selling $12 billion, almost $13 billion a year went off patent and lost 90% of its revenues in the space of 12 months. You close sites. We close research sites around the globe. Fewer researchers, fewer research programs as a result of these cuts. Is that what we want to do at a time when we're showing how valuable drug R&D can be and how valuable, forget vaccines, new cancer drugs, new, new drugs to treat obesity, new drugs to treat maybe Alzheimer's, are all terrific things. We're going to cut back on that. Now, one other thing about the IRA. They also screwed up what they're going to negotiate for. So in my old job, I had to run a portfolio of, of programs. And some programs were based on getting an antibody or a biologic to, to treat the disease. Others were small molecule pills, like a Lipitor, as you've described. By focusing only on, this, on the small molecule drugs, which is, which is what the government's going to do for the first two years, they're basically saying, we're going to go after those drugs earlier, uh, and they're going to have fewer viable commercial life uh, without price controls. Whereas the large molecule, more expensive, more difficult to administer, more costly to administer, injectable type drugs will be given four extra years of patent life. Now, I can tell you in my former job, if this had occurred, I would have been said, tell me what your portfolio balance is between small molecule drugs and the large molecule drugs, because clearly we're going to have a longer patent life, a longer, not patent life, but a longer time without price controls on the larger molecule drugs and the small ones. And if the balance was thought by the company to be out of whack, they say, you know what? Focus more on larger molecule drugs are more lucrative. They're for indications like cancer and rare diseases. Yes, there's a major medical need, but also uh, bigger profits. And so you're going to get a switch from, and from companies doing this sort of research to the larger molecules where people just don't go to, go to a drugstore and get their pills and go home. They have to once a month, twice a month, go into a local healthcare center and have these injected and stuff. You can't do this sort of stuff. Totally the wrong thing to do and, and the wrong balance. And so I think that's a, a big mistake as part of the IRA. I did an interview with Amitabh Chandra from Harvard about this very issue. And he points out, look, the small molecules are great. I mean, they go generic. They're, they become cheap. They're, yeah. they're free forever at that point. That's right. You know, why are we disincentivizing the small molecules? Yeah. And the other thing too, I just interviewed Jeff Yonker from Belhara Therapeutics, a very good small molecule company. You know, they've got an innovative pipeline. They just cut a $2 billion deal with Genentech. But the reality is there's a ton of action right now in the small molecules in neurology because they're more effective at crossing the blood brain barrier. And the idea that we're now going to be disincentivizing these, this neurology yeah. portfolio at a time where we need it yeah. 
It just seems to be... Oh, absolutely right. Yeah. And, but it's not just the companies, uh, the drug companies that are doing So the venture capitalists, of course. the people who fund early stage stuff, are now going to tend to shy away from the small amount. Not, to, not that it's all going to go away, not that it's not going to happen, but they'll be... You're just going to get less of you're it. You're just going to get less of it. And, yeah. and, that, and, that's, and by the way, I want to give a shout out to venture capitalists because... Uh, you know, everybody trying to take credit for the mRNA technology and stuff. It's really venture capitalists who funded the early days of companies like BioNTech and, and Moderna that enabled a lot, not, not just this, but all across the board. And so uh, uh, they deserve, I, I, don't, I don't see them get much credit during all of this, all the praise that gets all that. And they deserve it because they, they fund the early stuff uh, that a lot of technology gets, gets based on down the line. Absolutely. You know, the 12 companies that we looked at that we modeled around the IRA, we, we restricted it to the top 20 drugs. There's another methodology where the 10 come in, they drop in price then the next 15 are a totally different 15. So it's 25, sure. it's aggregate. That's now that's right. another way to model this. Now we didn't do that. We did it the way the CBO did it. We looked at those companies, those 12 companies that were gonna be impacted off those 20 drugs. Just some numbers for you. They did 588 billion in investment over 10 years, 58 billion, so almost 60 billion a year. Now what's scary, John, 440 of that 600 went to the US, <laughs> okay? And 150 billion, 15 billion a year went to California. Wow. You're an R&D guy. You're a venture capital guy too. Yeah. What do you see when you're going to be pulling 15 billion out of California? Or, or that money still goes to California and then Raleigh-Durham and you know other parts of the country sure. that are coming up are, sure. are pulled out. Look, it's going to have all people saw when they, in a bipartisan manner, Passed this legislation, and in fairness, the politicians, people were clamoring. Uh, well, we don't want to spend as much money on our drugs. We spend more than other countries, and I'm going to get into that in a second, than we do on drugs. So uh, they basically responded this time to their constituents. It's, it, but people don't understand what they're paying for. I want to talk about drug pricing for a second. Sure, please, John. Yes, we, <laughs> we, I, I'm not going to sit there and say we don't spend more on drugs in the United States than, than we do in other countries. You raised a good point, though, uh, that these drugs become generic, and once they become generic, the price goes through the floor. However, all of healthcare in the United States spends more. Yeah. Uh, if you look at a hip replacement, which people in my age group uh, are now getting uh, more frequently. Yeah, but John, you're always going to be hip. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> people who know me now. Yeah. You've just blown the credibility yeah. of this whole uh, podcast. But in any case, cheap joke. Yeah. $40,000 $40, per hip replacement in the United States. Now, hip replacements have been known for, uh, and, and by the way, in the UK, it's only. $10,000. In Paris, it's only $12,000. Poland, it's $2,500. You can, you can go to have a great week in France, have all sorts of, of great fly first class, stay in, in the Ritz, have a great time, get your hip replacement and come back and spend less than $40,000 it would cost here. Everything costs there. But the other difference is hip replacements don't go generic. Yeah. Every place been on for 60 years. There's no real improvement. Maybe the type of hip, but there's no real improvement in surgery. It's all done the same way. Healthcare costs are way more elsewhere, and that's just a general symptom of our, of our healthcare system and, uh, and the amount of money that, that we spend on it without necessarily better care. But drugs are meant to keep you out of hospitals, and drugs go generic, and that you can't say for other. If anything, we should be investing more in drugs because of all the benefits they provide and the ultimate cost savings to the healthcare system. I'd like to turn to the mRNA vaccine again, but particularly from the, the standpoint of intellectual property. 
On June 17th, the Biden administration backed the World Trade Organization decision to offer waivers for the intellectual property for the mRNA. So essentially, they're not going to enforce patents anymore if people want to produce them, say, in Brazil or India. So if a state actor, China, wants to acquire or use this technology, it's now been given a, a, a waiver from the World Trade Organization. Yeah. Are you concerned by this precedent, John? Well, you have to be concerned about this. Let's, let's come back to the MR, let the vaccines itself. So there are certain learnings here that were important that occurred there. So at the start of the availability of MRA vaccines, there's world organizations that would say, we can't have just the West getting these vaccines. They have to, if you don't cure COVID throughout the world, you're never going to cure COVID. And what's happening in places like Africa in terms of getting uh, the vaccines and how, what are we doing to get, get them there? Well, it's a fair criticism to have. The West was able to afford them earlier. But within a year of availability in the United States, Pfizer, as one example, uh, went to the Biden administration and gave them a billion doses of its COVID vaccine at cost. And the Biden administration turned around and donated them to Africa. The vaccines got sent back unused because rather than worrying about intellectual property, let's set up free so that you can make them in Africa. They didn't do things like set up distribution networks, which should have been happening to get the vaccine set up. They didn't do anything about vaccine hesitancy. If you thought vaccine hesitancy was a problem here, try Africa. Oh, and who's going to trust these vaccines coming from the United States and, and stuff like that? So, they should have focused on that. Now, let me come back to your point. So that's the other thing, free intellectual property. Okay, so let's make the intellectual property available in India and places like that. How long do you think it was going to take for them to get plants up and running? You don't build them overnight, even with a company with the resources of Pfizer. It took six months to get things going. So you're still going to have a problem. And then picture the unbelievable fight and battles to get the ingredients. There are over 200 ingredients that go into making an mRNA vaccine and there's supply chain issues and limited availability. So now you want a bunch of places trying to come up with this sort of stuff uh, and make their own vaccines and, and there's going to be a learning curve. That would have been the stupidest thing to do with the mRNA vaccines. Let's talk about valuable drugs in, in poor countries. Gilead got beat up a lot when, they came, when it came out with their uh, hepatitis C drug uh, because of its cost in the United States. Gilead allowed free access to the hepatitis C drug in Egypt, in India, in Morocco, so that local generic companies can make that at cost. I believe Pfizer's done the same thing with their antiviral drug for COVID. Paxlovid. Uh, Paxlovid. Exactly right. Same sort of thing. They've given countries the wherewithal to make it. But the beautiful thing about when this happens, when what Pfizer's pricing of its vaccine, Pfizer didn't charge everybody the $39 for the two dose. It was actually tiered, and many countries got it at cost. They just divided the world into poor, uh, low-income, moderate, and high, and based their pricing based on that. Well, of course, if you, you felt you were a low-income country and you didn't make the Pfizer list, you complain like crazy. How come yeah. we're not getting it in? So you, you can do this sort of stuff, and you can't win right. along the way. So you open up a, an unbelievable can of worms. Look at these drugs, as we always said, they're not forever. The patents don't last forever. And during a pandemic, companies made a lot of concessions to doing things. Giving a blank check now to say, well, we're not going to... Uh, where do you draw the line if you say, well, we won't enforce the COVID-19 vaccines? Patents. Well, what about this next great cure for uh, pancreatic cancer? Yeah. There are people dying all over. You're not going to enforce the patents there. Where does this all stop? I think it's, it's just a 
terrible downward slope that'll just get slipperier and slipperier. We looked at the current database of clinical trials that are running right now. There are over 100 mRNA-based clinical trials currently operationally uh, being developed for multiple indications. And the idea that we're just going to start giving away the basic patent technology for that just seems crazy to I, me. I, I, I agree. Any patent technology. Look, companies have shown that, yes, they have to make profits, but they're not uh, making profits at a be-all and end-all. Uh, the industry's at 14% net, net profitability yeah. right now. Slightly less than the soft drink sector. Yeah, yeah. well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's the other problem. People think these companies are just vastly rich, and it's just not true. They're, they're a profitable industry, but no more profitable, probably in the middle of, if you looked at all and, sectors. And the top five companies basically fund 70 80% of all the R&D, and it switches. As a company yeah. has the cash, yeah. Pfizer's right sitting now. on a mountain of cash right now. So they will be investing, yeah. and they will be funding R&D, and these companies change. And they have to. Exactly. And they have to because usually a patent life of a drug will last about 14 or 15 years, which means you have to reinvent yourself. You have to make up not only the sales of those drugs, but enough to show some kind of growth to shareholders so you can continue to think. It's, it's just unfair. Coke hasn't had to... to uh, reinvent the the original. Well, Coke, they did that right? once, and they it, did, once it, it didn't work, work out very it well. It didn't work. Yeah, that's true. So it's just, uh, and, but nobody chooses to understand this, and there are people who should know better who do not uh, make these points. Continuing on this discussion on intellectual property and, and the Biden administration's rather aggressive stance, on October seventh, um, Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra said that they want to use margin rights to control pricing, and that that was quote not off the table unquote. What are marching rights related to NIH research, and what do you think would happen if we do start so, using them in the context of pricing? There are some people who view that the government really funds all research, and all the biopharma companies do is simply uh, <laughs> license it and manufacturing them. I use, and I'll come back to your specific point, Seth, but I use an example, uh, Zelljans, which is an anti-rheumatoid arthritis drug, a pill, non-injectable, which saves the healthcare system all sorts of costs, which is now generic, believed soon to be generic. So it costs now- Pennies on pennies, the dollar. Pennies pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the way that was discovered was a Pfizer scientist, I'll give him a shout out here, Paul Changelian, went to a meeting in Vermont. Oh, this goes back now, uh, 23, 24 years. And he almost didn't go to the meeting because his wife was seven, eight months pregnant and, and he didn't want to leave her home alone. And he said, well, but she knew the meeting was important. And she said, well, let's go to Vermont. If I go into labor there, there are hospitals in Vermont that they be born in Vermont. <laughs> so they go up. And while he's there, he runs into a, a, a friend of his uh, named John O'Shea. And O'Shea's working at the NIH and he's working on trying to understand the immune system and why some people don't have an immune system. And he came up with a certain target called Jack. And what O'Shea was saying was, you know, people who don't have this this jack enzyme don't have a functional immune system. And he was looking for ways to try and fix that. Changelian hears this and says, wow, well, maybe people who are normal have normal jack systems. Maybe if their immune system is out of whack, overactive in things like rheumatoid arthritis and diabetes, rejection of uh, organs, transplants, maybe I can come up with a drug to treat all these immune diseases. So he came back. We set up a deal with the NIH to license in a non-exclusive manner access to the reagents. And then we started a research program. And basically, 17 or 18 years later, and I don't know, uh, $1.2 billion, we came up with Zelljans. 
This is a great example of where the NIH makes contribution. The NIH is a fantastic organization. They do fantastic research, and they're very important to do very basic early stuff. And by the way, 95% of the stuff they do doesn't work. Yeah. They're doing very early stuff, but it's important. And the government, for over 100 years, has funded all sorts of things in the names of national defense, mostly uh, uh, things for defense and weapon systems and things like that, but also technology. The technology, we all, we all have iPhones here. The early technology that iPhones are based was all funded by the uh, NSF. So can I walk into Apple and say, hey, listen, my tax money paid for this technology. I, I should get a 50% discount. Of course not. So why would we say, well, you know, the government funded basic research that led to Why would we justify that? Why should we pay the kind of money these companies? It's stupid. But now you're getting what's called margin rights. The government say, well, you know, there's a patent from many years ago that the Zelgen's patent that we agreed to license this stuff to, but you wouldn't have had anything. So we think Medicare and Medicaid should get a 50% discount on all the Zelgen. Are you kidding me? That's what the extremists will say. Or what happens in foreign countries, in smaller countries, well, we can't afford your drugs, so we're going to ignore your patents, and we're just going to manufacture them here yeah. in our country. And India has threatened this. Colombia has too. Uh, Colombia. And so what do you do? Well, what the Biden administration is now saying is, well, well, we're not going to enforce things like that if they can't afford it. Oh, we're, we're big and, and these companies are big and we can afford it. And we already talked about this with the Inflation Reduction Act. Less revenues, less research, less researchers, less program, and less new drugs. We just recently had a peer review study in therapeutic innovation and regulatory science looking at the relative contributions of NIH and private sector funding in biopharmaceuticals. And what we found statistically was, it basically boils down to this. If the private sector is not there, the drug does not come to market, period. There's a 0.02% chance that the NIH produces a drug. And then if you have over 90% plus of the funding mix coming from the private sector, you actually have a 60% probability of market entry. So basically the more money you see coming in from the private sector, the more likely the drug is to be approved. So it's really the private sector that does this in the driver's seat. What would happen if we start nationalizing the sector? There was recently a European Parliament think tank report that said, we need to start taking the private sector out of drug development. And this is sort of where marching rights come in too. This is an international movement in many ways. Well, what happens if we do that? You'll kill the industry. Will uh, anything come to market? Well, you, you would hope something would come to market, but you won't get the 40 or 50 new drugs that are getting approved every year in this country and, and elsewhere in the world. You might get five, might get 10. You look at all the people crying out for new medicine, particularly you see things in cancer and rare diseases and people saying, well, you did this wonderful stuff on COVID-19. Can't you do this on these other diseases? And I think breakthroughs can be made like that. Heck, it's happening in dozens and dozens of new drugs every year. But you're just going to kill the golden goose. And you said in your book, Pharma and Profits, that, quote, the government does not deserve a piece of the biopharma profits. They get them from taxes, but why do you think that this yeah, is... Well, well, it's the justification of people say, well, you know, the NIH invests all this money into research. Uh, the government deserves a piece of that. Really? Does the government deserve a piece of all the uh, iPhones or, or the computer stuff that is sold? Absolutely not. Look, unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago, but Bob Dole and Birch Bayh passed a wonderful act, the Bayh-Dole Act. And they passed this now a few decades ago because... 
these breakthroughs, these new scientific findings that were being done in places like the NIH weren't getting picked up yeah. by industry. And they weren't getting picked up by industry just for this reason that government said, well, we'll have margin rights and blah, blah, and you'll have to kick back the money. And the company says, it's not worth it. And so by Dole actually got that to stop happening. And Bob Dole wrote a wonderful editorial uh, as the COVID vaccines were coming out. And I think it was important for him to do, acknowledging that the mRNA vaccines came out of some initial work that might have been done at, at the NIH and other research institutes. But without that act and without the bond between public and private, nothing happens. And he was absolutely right. Overwhelmingly now, close to 50% of the drugs in the U.S. are developed by small companies of less than half a billion yeah. They originate it. If we look at Europe, when Arthur Damrish from Harvard wrote his study uh, that looked at origination in 1980, 55-60% of drugs originated in Europe. It, it, Europe's down to 20% yeah. now. What's happening in Europe? Why is the industry leaving Europe? I think it has a lot to do with the biotech industry. The United States in, in biotech is just exploded. And it's exploded because of venture capitalists who are willing to invest in small startup companies, knowing that 80 to 90% will fail, but the 10% that will, will But you can it. invest in Europe too, though, Jim. But uh, venture capitalists are not investing as much. That's not to say nothing happens, but it's a whole lot less. These companies are getting set up in places like Boston, San Francisco, uh, San, San Diego. Diego. Those are the intellectual hubs. There are hundreds of these companies there. There's some in, in London, I guess, and sure. Paris, but it's a whole lot less. You know, when I had to close research sites back at Pfizer in 2007, six or seven, I shut a major research, reference this earlier, when Lipitor went off patent, we lost a lot of money, we, our research budget got cut uh, by about 20%. Did cut a site in the United States in Ann Arbor, Michigan, big site, the former Warner Lambert Park Davis site. But we closed two sites in France, we closed a major site in Sandwich, England, we closed Japan in Nagoya. Still more of a hub in terms of R&D happening here than in other places. I don't know the amount of money that other countries invest in their own internal R&D. Uh, I suspect it's somewhat less, but certainly the venture capital companies focus more here than, than elsewhere. Even professors who have interesting ideas might base their company here in, in the U.S. Than, than they're sort of interesting. In 2021, China had 93 venture stage backed biopharma startups. Now that equaled the U.S. That's the first time it's happened. The EU has been roughly stagnant at 44. Are you concerned that this evolution we've seen of assets moving from startups moving from Europe to the US, if we hold on IRA, if we keep with these rhetorics around margin rights, if we keep attacking pricing, are we concerned that the same movement we saw from Europe to the US, I mean, we can pollute the waters, right? We can muddy well, the water yeah. so much that things will move to China if they're going to sure. make more money. Uh, I would have said before COVID, that would have been a big worry. COVID sort of changed the landscape, in my mind, for China. Shut down countries, not allowing access, difficult getting materials in and out. And now the whole new yeah. COVID wave, potential wave there. People are very worried that there'll be new mutations coming out of China because they opened up all at once. And so now they're getting millions of infections, or I assume millions, but, but many, many infections. That's going to cause more mutations, et cetera. So... And I think with supply chain issues, more companies are looking to do more where they know they'll get access to things. So you can't ignore China. China's a big powerhouse. China's got a lot of money and China will continue to grow. So of course they're gonna be a bigger player. We'll have to wait and see. John, it's always 
a great pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. It's, this is uh, always fun to talk to you and, and, to, and to deal with these issues and, and to let me vent a little bit <laughs> going forward. Well, so we both vent, John. <laughs> it's great to see you. Same here. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.